What's up? It's Delaney, and I'd love to invite you to become an honorary co-host of the Self-Helpless Podcast. Do you want to pick episode topics and guests? Done. Want to surprise your loved ones with shout-outs on the show for a birthday, project launch, a much-needed divorce? Whatever you're up to, would love to be a part of the celebration. Get your favorite and least favorite quotes featured on the podcast, submit questions for our special guests, and find lots more new features and surprises at patreon.com slash selfhelpless. You'll also get added to our patron insider email list to easily redeem rewards via a quick email reply because we know hanging out on Patreon isn't everyone's thing. You can also opt out of emails if you prefer to be a silent supporter of the show. And don't worry, we do not Scrooge McDuck these contributions. 100% of proceeds go directly to operating expenses that make this weekly podcast possible and available to all. Learn more at patreon.com selfhelpless or simply click the link in this episode's description. Thank you for helping me fill the void of being the last standing host of the Self Helpless Podcast. Thank you so much. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Can you help? Can you help me? Can you help? Can you help? Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Self-Helpless Podcast. I'm Delaney Fisher, and I'm actually pretty starstruck right now because somebody that I've admired for years, um, I got a chance to meet him today and talk with him. Uh, Ed Winters is here. You might know him as Earthling Ed online, and Ed is a vegan educator, best-selling author, public speaker, and content creator, widely known for his viral debates and speeches, video essays. He's given speeches all around the world from universities to major corporations. He's done TED Talks. And his message reaches millions of people. And I really do not say this lightly, that this guy has changed my freaking life. Um, he is one of the very first people that I found when I decided to just start looking into veganism and starting to make that transition. And he has such a grounded, calm, compassionate presence. And I think that's why he's been so successful in connecting with so many people from different viewpoints and lifestyles and walks of life. He's just opened thousands of people's minds to this topic in a new way. And I am one of those people. And I've always very much been a debate nerd myself. I'm very data-driven. Um, my favorite class in college was ethics. So I love a good debate. I love hearing from all sides of the story. Um, and I like a lot of facts and stats and all of that. And so that's why I think I was so drawn to Ed's content in the first place is all of it is just conversation and it's backed up by such incredible information. And today's episode, is actually from the perspective of me when I was 18 years old. So when I was 18, I met my first vegan person and we became friends. And everything that I'm talking about with Ed today, the questions I'm asking, the points that we're bringing up are things that I actually said verbatim directly to vegan people that I've met throughout my life, uh, things that I've said about them behind their back, and just how I truly felt about the whole vegan thing. Um, 
So I met my first vegan at 18 and then I went vegan myself at 28. So it took me 10 years to actually look into that lifestyle myself. Um, I was completely closed off to it and for a very long time. And I just assumed that that it was hard. It was, you know, veganism ugh, sounds like a life of deprivation, sounds extreme. I just pictured vegans were people with armpit hair down to their kneecaps and sat in daily drum circles making their own kombucha, which to be honest, sounds kind of nice sometimes. I might have to try that. But um, even the word vegan is so loaded, right? Like it has such this stigma to it. Um, and that's why a lot of brands that you'll notice, they don't use the word vegan when they promote their products. You'll see on a lot of you know marketing and packaging that brands will choose the words dairy-free, meat-free, egg-free, plant-based, because they know that people are turned off by the word vegan and all the stereotypes and feelings that come with it. So I was not very nice to vegan people that I met. Um, I would, you know, my viewpoint was very much like I could never do it. I like ice cream, cheese, bacon, no thanks, see you later. So here I am five years into being vegan. And it it's one of the things that I like, it's one of the most life-changing things that I've done. It's one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. And just a few of the health benefits that I've experienced, um, and I'll get a little bit more in detail at the end of this episode, um, I've gone from acne to clear skin. I've gone from having a lot of digestive issues to not having any at all. Um, I've gone from a Hashimoto's thyroiditis diagnosis to being completely in remission. These are just a few of the things that I have personally experienced and a very unexpected result of, you know, me going down this path is that my dad and stepmom have now both gone vegan as well. And my gosh, were they anti-vegan people? Holy shit. Um, my dad's family is from the Midwest. Um, my, my stepmom grew up in Montana. We all ate you know, meat, dairy, eggs at every single meal. And the fact that my dad now walks around wearing t-shirts like that say, I don't eat anything that poops. It, it's just mind blowing to me that this is who this fucking guy is now. And what's so funny is that what opened um, them up to this idea is they actually tuned into an episode of Self Helpless uh, about four years ago. They went vegan about a year or so after I did. And they are big fans of the comedian Preacher Lawson, who we had on the show about four years ago. And Preacher was talking about that he was vegan and my parents really liked what he said about it. And Preacher had recommended a documentary called Earthlings that my parents ended up watching. So I was vegan for like over a year and that apparently didn't mean shit to my parents. But as soon as a Preacher, a comedian that they love, said he was vegan, they were very much more open to the idea, um, watched that documentary and just made that transition pretty quickly. And what's so funny, if you go back to that episode with Preacher, we both talk about how much we love Earthling Ed. Um, and so the fact that I get to talk with Ed Winters today is such a funny full circle moment. So my parents were very excited to hear that I was going to get to um, chat with Ed today. They could not believe it. They're, they're fans of him as well. And they wanted me to share some information um, about the things that they have experienced now. Um, 
So, uh, you know, they're four years into being vegan and everything from their cholesterol and blood pressure issues, you know, reducing, like not needing medication for those things anymore. They've lost weight. Um, my stepmom always had really bad allergies. She was somebody who had to take Benadryl pretty much every day. She would has, she had like puffy eyes and phlegm, all that kind of stuff. She said within three days of, you know, eating a, a plant-based diet, um, all of her phlegm and puffy eyes, just, it was gone. Like they, they weren't even existing anymore. So not only did her allergies improve, but she actually doesn't even have allergies anymore, which sounds like a fucking miracle. Um, so very shocking information. And, um, she just talks about having like a brightness and energy to her. Now, my parents recently got some lab results from their doctor. Their doctor told them that internally they have the bodies of 30 something year olds. And the doctor just said, keep doing whatever the hell you're doing because it's working. Uh, my parents are in their fifties and sixties. So this has truly changed our life and transformed our health. Like this decision that they made has added years onto their life, which is just really huge when you think about it that way, as much as we joke about the whole vegan thing. Um, I'm just so incredibly grateful. And it's something that, you know, none of us really saw coming. And when we talk about being vegan, um, our biggest regret is that we didn't do it earlier and that we weren't even open to talking about it earlier. So um, this episode is very much just an introduction with an expert who is in this space. Um, you know, Ed, he connects with a lot of people in this space as well, other experts and, um, you know, doctors and epidemiologists and people in agriculture. And at the end of the episode, I'll share a little bit about my first steps with making this transition because it's the question I probably get asked about the most is kind of what changed my mind and how, how I started and all that. So I will share that towards the end. And ultimately, I just really wish I would have been open to this conversation so much earlier in my life, but I was impenetrable. Um, and, you know, that first vegan person I met, when I reflect back on that relationship, I kind of just berated her about being vegan. And it's like, no wonder she never brought that shit up with me, um, you know, or felt like she could not have a conversation with me about it. And I really wish I could go back in time and have a different conversation and just be more open to it. And I really thought, you know, that, that vegans were so judgmental. Um, and from my personal experience and perspective now, when I, when I go back and think about the interactions I've had, I was actually the one who was asking them a lot of questions and kind of interrogating them and, um, I realized I was the one who was judgmental. Um, I'm not saying that vegan people can't be judgmental and, and non-vegan people can't be judgmental. Of course, everybody can, but I only got that perspective when it started happening to me. And when I started kind of getting a lot of questions and, and, um, weird judgments and, you know, just like awkward situations happen, it, you know, what goes around comes around basically. And then, you know, it's very ironic that, how I used to treat vegans is now how I often get treated in social situations. So perhaps I can be that person for you today, even if you're really closed off to all this, you know, maybe a seed will be planted just enough for you to have an interest to look into this for yourself at some point, because 
It might just change your life the way it has done for me and my family. And even though it's uncomfortable for me to bring up because, um, you know, part of me wants to be liked and supported and fit in. Um, if it does help just one person in the way that it's helped us, then this conversation is completely worth it. So Ed is about to answer all kinds of questions, everything from isn't vegan food really expensive to don't we need to eat animals for nutritional purposes to, um, well, other animals eat animals. So shouldn't we, it's just the circle of life and all that kind of stuff. So here is my conversation with Ed Winters. Ed, thank you so much for being here today. Um, everybody just heard me gush about you in the introduction, so they know how nervous I am to talk to you, but like, thank you so much for being here. No, of course, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me on. And um, it's, I mean, it's so lovely that, you, um, that you know, you've had those nice words to say, so I really appreciate it very much, and I'm honored to be able to speak with you this afternoon. Oh, amazing. Thank you. So I would just love to know what is your favorite or least favorite quote before we get into all the juice today? Yeah, I like I like this idea of a least favorite quote. <laughs> it's not something I've ever really thought about, but it's it's intriguing. I quite like it. I wish I kind of thought a little bit about that one, but I have a, I have a quote that I really do like. Um, and I reference it a lot in, in this, the public speaking opportunities I have. And it's from a, a civil rights activist um, whose, whose name was James Baldwin. He was an author and an activist. Um, and it says that the world changes according to the way that people see it. And if you can change the way people see the world by even a millimeter, you can you can change the world. And I think that's a lovely quote because it kind of reinforces how like we sometimes, I suppose, overburden ourselves with expectation but actually the smallest changes actually lead to to seismic shifts over time and I've always liked that as a way of just reinforcing to myself as well as to others that lots of small things add up to big changes over time oh absolutely I I love that quote I'm a huge fan of just simplicity and one mm -hmm. baby step at a time and that's truly how I approach going vegan as well so I think it's incredibly relevant about what we're talking yeah. about today as far as today's episode I thought it would be, be an interesting perspective to ask you questions today based on what I actually said and thought and did before I went vegan about five years ago. So things that I actually said to vegans that I met, yeah. things that I said about them behind their back and just <laughs> how I felt overall. Um, I met my first vegan person when I was 18. That was my first vegan friend. And 10 years later, ended up going vegan myself. Um, so how does that sound if I ask you kind of questions as my former self in a way? <laughs> I love it. Let's do it. Okay, awesome. Um, before we get into that, I'm curious to know how long have you been vegan, Ed? And like, how long were you not vegan before making that transition? Yeah, I've been vegan for eight years. Okay. Um, so I went vegan in, in 2015. Um, and so I've been a meat eater for about 19, 20 years. And I was vegetarian for about eight months and then I went vegan just before I turned 21. So yeah, it's been, been eight years for me. Okay. Very interesting. And like, what was the first introduction? Maybe not even the thing that made you go mm -hmm. vegan, but the very first introduction moment, if you can remember. Oh, that's a really good question. The first introduction moment. I can't remember the first time I was introduced to the concept of, of veganism, but I can almost certainly guarantee that it wasn't a positive one. I think that I probably, I remember there was this guy I'd met who was vegan, but he kind of reinforced some of the stereotypes that people have against vegans. And I remember thinking, oh God, vegans. So I can't remember like the first time I ever came across as a concept, but I know that before I actually took that step myself, 
I was a strong proponent of veganism being militant and extreme and unnecessary. You know, I, I guess probably similar to the things you used to say as well. I mean, most yes. vegans had a negative impression of veganism before they uh, realized the merits behind it. Right. Oh, absolutely. I thought it was just a life of deprivation and you know, <laughs> horror. Um, so <laughs> if I if I put myself, if I take myself back 10 years ago or not 10 years ago, more than 10 years, um, the first thing that would come to mind if I was like an 18 year old tuning into this conversation is mm. why even listen to Ed about this topic? Like, is Ed a doctor or scientist? Like, how do you respond to that in this line of work, which I'm sure you probably get questions like that frequently. Yeah, I think when we when we talk about important and complex issues, especially ones that are health and environmentally orientated, um, because they they rely on on scientific evidence and on and on good data, I think the question should always be, what do authorities say on these issues? Um, and I think that we live in a world now where with social media, there is a proliferation of um, poor academia and, and kind of un, unsubstantiated opinions. You know, you go on Instagram and you're going to get bombarded with 10 reels about health things. You know, 80% of them are probably nonsense. 10% of them are probably true, but but maybe, you know, over-exaggerated. It's really hard to know what's true. And so the, yeah. the way that I see my work um, outside of the ethical side of veganism, the way I see my work in terms of the environmental and, and health or orientated aspects of it is I am really just a voice of, for the experts. They're the ones producing the science, the United Nations, the WHO, the University of Oxford, you know, the American Dietetic Association. These are the leading bodies in, in environmental and health science globally. And I'm really just regurgitating the information that they're presenting that doesn't get in front of people because, you know, press releases aren't sent out to people and they're not glamorous. You know, the scientific data is a little bit heavy at times. So my, my role, I suppose, as an advocate and as a communicator is how do I take this complex information and then convey it in a way that people will then be able to find on social media or will find it engaging to listen to? So that's I always think the question is someone ever asked me that I say, if I was to say something that contradicted the leading authorities, then you should really question why I'm saying that. But based on like the evidence I'm showing you, that's where the scrutiny should be being placed. That makes so much sense. And I really appreciate that you do this work because I would have probably never found out all this information because I, I'm not going to read every single article. I don't know where to mm. find maybe a lot of this information. And I have a hard time yes. sifting through what's real and what's not, and you know what's true and what's not. It's been a lot of confusion in that space before I made this transition. Um, yeah. So when I was 18, I met my first vegan person. She became my friend. And I remember the first moment we sat down to a meal together and I asked her like, why isn't this and this on your plate? And she told me that she was vegan. And I immediately, I just had this visceral reaction. It was just like, First of all, yikes, uh, that sounds hard. That sounds extreme. I bet the food is gross. You know, all around just sounded like no thanks deprivation. But yeah. at the time I had never read anything about veganism, not a single page in a single book. I didn't know even how my food really got made. I didn't know what went into all the meat and dairy and eggs that I consumed at every single meal on a daily basis. I had never tried like vegan meals before besides the food that I ate that happened to be vegan, but I just yeah. didn't know really anything about it. Yet I had this 
re this, this instant reaction. And I realize I don't do that with other things in my life. I don't like say, oh my gosh, Virginia is such a disgusting state, you know, without ever <laughs> actually traveling to Virginia or being there or thoroughly learning about Virginia. So in your opinion, or from your experience, you've talked to thousands of people about this. Why do you think I had such a visceral reaction to this person when I was 18? I mean, that is such a phenomenal question. And it's something that I think really touches at the heart of this issue, which is food isn't just about, you know, calories and nutrition. It's it's symbolic of so much more. It's, as you say, it's about taste. So it's about pleasure. It's about socializing. It's about cultures and traditions and identities and ego. Food is, is so much bigger than just protein, calcium and calories, right? right? Because if it was as simple as that, then the, the conversation around veganism would be a lot simpler than it is. But because food is an intrinsic part of so many aspects of our experiences, it becomes a lot more of a difficult um, conversation to have. And I think the reason why when we first meet a vegan or we hear about veganism or we we see something online that's promoting veganism, I think the reason why our initial reaction is to not want to engage with it is because we're looking for any excuse possible to not have to face up to a difficult conversation. And I think that veganism is a difficult conversation, not because we necessarily disagree with the merits of it, you know, if you ask anyone, would you like a food system that reduces animal suffering, that reduces the environmental harm of our foods, um, that, that can be healthier, um, that can actually improve social health by making food more affordable and accessible, that reduces the risk of antibiotic resistance, that reduces the risk of bird flus and swine flus. If you present that as the question, I think the majority of people are going to say yes on all counts. And that's fundamentally what a plant-based food system would achieve. It would help us in all of those different regards. So that's like the very objective, rational question. But then underneath all that is this question of how does food relate to our personal journey and our personal experience? And I think that's why we start to get a little bit hesitant when it comes to this issue, because it's requiring something that's quite challenging, which is for us to address so many different core aspects of our life and our existence. Oh, that makes so much sense. Uh, I remember one of my one of my very good friends has said out loud to me, she said, I think vegans are right. It just sounds way too hard for me. So <laughs> I, I exactly. think that that like totally sums up what you just said. And I personally feel a very strong emotional connection to food. Like I remember St. Patrick's Day growing up. My grandfather was born in Dublin. We'd have corned beef and cabbage every St. Patty's Day. Uh, I grew up baking with my grandmother. She would make those like sugar cookies with like the thumbprints. And I remember cracking yeah. eggs and, you know, making the batter with her. And I remember, you know, before making this transition, when the, when the word cruelty would come up uh, associated with this topic, I would feel like I went into black and white thinking immediately. Right. I would feel like, okay, if you think what I, what my family is doing is cruel, or you think I'm cruel, then like, we're not cruel. You know, like, if you think this is bad, then you think I'm bad. Then you think we're bad. And I'm yeah. just trying to keep my loving family traditions and culture alive and what I'm doing. So can you expand on that in any way? Like, how do we start to maybe open ourselves up to a different way maybe of keeping your traditions alive or anything that you want to share about that topic? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the first thing is, is something that you alluded to so well, which is that when we, when we frame an issue as being like an ethical issue or a moral issue, which, you know, what we do to animals for food is it's, it's an ethical issue. The simplistic way of framing that is to then perceive those who eat animal products as being bad because we believe it to be an immoral thing to cause, you know, unnecessary suffering and harm to animals, but that overlooks 
so much nuance and so much complexity, which is these behaviors are ingrained, they're normalized, they're perpetuated, they're legal. All of these things add up to a situation where, you know, very kind, very compassionate, very good people, undeniably very good people are engaging in a system which more objectively is worse than the alternative, which is to not do these things to animals. And so I think that the first thing to do is to kind of remove some of that um, heightenedness around this conversation to, to kind of level this conversation as being one about morals, but not one that's intrinsically questioning the foundations of someone's, you know, being and the goodness in that person. So just to say, hey, that we can detach ourselves from this, this kind of more abstract conversation, which is one of, of ethical um, and priorities, I suppose. And I think that when we do that, it makes it easier to kind of engage in a more personal individualistic level and a lot of the work that I do when I have conversations with people is about trying to meet people where they're at and try and remove some of that emotion from this undeniably quite emotive conversation to keep it a little bit more rational so that we can meet each other in a state where we don't feel that there's an accusation or a judgment or that there's these ideas that I'm on my ethical vegan high horse type of type of thing so I think that's the the first thing to do and then I think the second thing to do is acknowledge you know, as we have done things like culture and tradition and their importance, acknowledge it, but then work work around this in a way where we can uphold the true meanings behind these practices, but do so in a, in a more sustainable and ethical way. And I think the thing about cultures and traditions is at their heart, they are constantly changing concepts. Wherever we live in the world, culturally is vastly different to how it was 500 years ago, 100 years ago. Right. You know, culture is always evolving and, and for the betterment of society, because we've never had a point in history where culture anywhere in the world has been perfect. And we're certainly not there now. So anything that happens in the world that is a form of progression is a form of um, a form of a changing culture. And I think that with food, whilst it does play an intrinsic part in so many aspects of our lives, it can still do that in a plant-based version. And, and this is just another form of culture um, evolving and changing to become better over time and become more, um, I, I suppose, more fluid because that's what morality always is. You know, it's a fluid, ever-changing thing based on perception, based on opinion. And I think that the way we're viewing animals is part of this fluid morality where we're starting to acknowledge that they too should be factored into our circle of, of uh, moral consideration as well. That is such a good point because when I can when I can take myself outside of this issue and I think about other issues, like the fact that women couldn't open up a bank account in like in the 50s without a man being involved, like that right. shit needed to change. That was not right. cool, right? Yes. And so the fact that why wouldn't our food system or, or how we view animals also be incorporated into how we're all evolving um, and you know, hopefully having more and more compassion as we yeah. evolve for everybody we had like a group of friends. She was the only one who was vegan. And I remember she had left the table to go to class. And then I started talking to my other non-vegan friends about the fact that that's just so weird to me that she does that because like, we're just part of the food chain. Like other animals eat animals and we're animals. So why wouldn't we eat animals? Doesn't it seem like confusing? Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. 
Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Um, yes. Anything to share about the food cycle and that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, the, the first thing to acknowledge is what you said is completely true. There are food chains that exist in nature. Those food chains have predators and prey within them. Um, and, and food chains are incredibly important within nature. They, you know, balance population sizes of wild animals. They ensure that there's, um, you know, enough, enough food for all the different species to be able to coexist somewhat. So that they form a, a fundamentally important environmental purpose. But what we do to animals is not part of a food chain. You know, we are selectively breeding and artificially inseminating tens of billions of animals into existence, causing deforestation, species extinction, habitat loss along the way. You know, in fact, the biggest driver of, of all three of those things is animal farming. It's responsible for more deforestation than anything else in the world, any other industry in the world. Oh, wow. So it actually destabilizes, you know, the food chains in nature. Um, so it, it does the opposite of what a food chain should do. But secondly, and I suppose more importantly, is what ses sets us apart from other animals is that we firstly have the knowledge to be vegan. You know, we know how we can get all the nutrients we need to be healthy. And we also have the moral agency to be able to rationalize these conversations. Whilst I'll you know, defend the rights of animals vehemently, I also think that humans and animals and non-human animals are, of course, very different. And that's that's a perfectly reasonable acknowledgement to make because it's true. And one of the differences that that exists is an intellectual difference. You know, we are, of course, more intellectual than other animals, but, but with that comes responsibility. You know, knowledge is a form of power. You know, the more you know, the more you can act on, on this knowledge. But with knowledge and power comes responsibility to act and act accordingly. And I think that whilst we are more intelligent, that comes with a responsibility for us to scrutinize our actions more. And so we, whilst we wouldn't hold a line, you know, a line up as a as a, a moral uh, beacon in other areas, you know, we don't try and you know engage in, in the world like lions do in the wild. I think with food, we should treat it in a similar way. You know, other animals may eat other animals, but we are not like them. We are more advanced, more capable. And also importantly, we have the the ability to be vegan. And so the conversation for us is ultimately very different. Mm, with great power comes great responsibility. Love it. That's a Superman quote, right? <laughs> uh, I have. To, it's actually a Spider-Man quote, I think. Spider-Man, you know, shit. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not a cool nerd. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> um, yes, that makes sense. But you know, at that time, I don't think I felt like this big separation between me and other animals, and even just thinking of animals as products, like anything else, like mm. we build trees and we cut them down. We use them as paper. We grow animals or we, you know, breed animals and we kill them and eat them in the same kind of way. And I felt like almost, I don't know that we had permission to do so because we yeah. might be more intellectual beings or something. Hey, we figured out this system. Why not benefit from it? Kind of a thing. And yeah. So anything to share about that? Like, and also like, do animals even really feel the same pain that we do? I heard chickens are kind of dumb. Do they even know they're getting killed to be eaten? Like anything that you can share based on that way of thinking that, uh, that I used to have. Well, yeah. I mean, again, it's a, it's a really common way of thinking. And actually the last part of your question, I think is really fascinating because when you said, do we know that animals, if animals feel pain like we do, the answer is actually no. But what I always think is, is quite interesting is let's say, um, you know, we acknowledge that feelings of pain, the, the, the sense of feeling of pain is, um, is a sense. You know, we recognize that certain animals can smell longer distances than we can or have more acute senses of smell. Some can see for miles into the distance birds, uh, for example. 
you know, some can hear for, for huge, you know, over huge differences and differentiate different frequencies and sounds. In other words, animals experience things in ways that we can't actually comprehend. And in many ways, some of their senses, at least in some species, are actually more complex than potentially even our own. And I always think that whilst we don't know how animals feel, you know, we, we recognize they do feel pain, but we don't know if it's more severely than us or less severely. That's kind of the point. We don't know. And I think like in the same way with, with each other, the way we experience is subjective. You know, the way that you feel pain may be very different to the way that I feel pain. You know, we have different thresholds, different tolerances. It's probably the same for animals as well. And so there's actually no way of knowing whether when we do these things to animals, maybe they experience it in a different way than we do, maybe even a worse way than we do. I think the important thing is to recognize that they do feel, they are sentient, they are conscious. And what we put them through is a process that undeniably causes them harm and undeniably is a process that they don't want to be involved in. I think that's the first thing to establish because when we view situations of morality, I think it's or, you know, situations of ethics, I think it's important that we view them from the position of the victim. And it's not necessarily about how animals compare to us. It's how they are in and, in and of themselves, you know, in and of themselves in their own right. So it's not about comparing chickens to humans. It's about recognizing that chickens in and of themselves are sentient conscious beings who feel pain and suffer and undeniably feel pain and suffer in, in our conventional farming systems. Um, now, humans are more intelligent and we could think that that gives us a right, but we actually don't view that as being the case normally. You know, we're more intelligent than dogs and cats and, and other animals, but we actually think that people who harm dogs and cats are some of the worst people, but precisely because it's an abuse of power. And actually an abuse of power is one of those things that we look on with the, you know, the most amount of scorn because we see people who abuse power as being... Um, you know, worthy of condemnation. So actually, when we look at what we do to other animals, we don't apply that standard consistently. And I think that when we see pigs, cows, chickens, lambs as being morally comparable to dogs and cats, which they are, all of a sudden it becomes more um, obvious that our intellect alone shouldn't be a good justification for what we do to them. If anything, it provides us with a responsibility to not do what we currently do to them. Wow. I've never thought of it that way that we don't know, like it could be yeah. worse for them. I've never <laughs> thought about that because of their different senses that they have that are actually, yeah, more intense than ours. That is such a fascinating thing. And I completely resonate with this. I had this disconnect with pets and animals that you eat. I had birds growing up, bunnies, dogs, cats, all that stuff would never eat them, would never want to go and buy a dog meat and, and cook it and eat it. Yet, you know, cows, chickens, all these other things, no big deal. Yet people in other countries, they might revere cows and they think, you know, what we do is heartbreaking to cows and what, you know, what other people are doing to dogs is heartbreaking. What is going on here where we have, everybody seems to have animals in different categories. And I don't know, how, how do we rectify that with ourselves? Yeah, um, I think it's about, again, trying to view what we do more objectively so obviously, again, in the cultures where we live, at least you and I, you know, pigs, cows, chickens, lambs are all animals we consider to be food. And then we have some hard, you know, some hard lines, dogs and cats. No rabbits, is, you know, sometimes we eat rabbits, sometimes we don't. It, it's all very confusing. And this is because we, we don't. The, the, suppose the lines that we draw are kind of ultimately arbitrary lines. They're not substantiated. There's no reason why a pig should be killed, but a dog shouldn't be because they're not, apart from the way that they look and the way that they act behaviorally, there's not anything really that differentiates them substantially so that we should treat them so you know different 
ethically speaking. And I think that when we start to rationalize our actions, it becomes more understandable why they should change. But the problem is we don't stop and rationalize our actions. You know, because we've lived a certain way our whole lives, because our families live this way, because our friends live this way, we're constantly having the way that we live reinforced to us. So we never go into a supermarket and stop and go, hang on a minute, how do I morally justify this? We just go, oh, I like the taste of beef burgers, therefore I'm going to buy them. Or, you know, I've got a barbecue this weekend, so I'm going to get some pig-made hot dogs. We don't really ever stop and reflect on it. And I think that's a big piece of this puzzle. It's encouraging people to just decide for themselves by reflecting honestly about how they feel towards animals and saying, well, why would I not eat a dog and a cat when you know many cultures around the world think they're delicious? They're a good source of protein as well. So I could eat them for the same reasons that I eat pigs and cows, but I don't. And the reason I don't is not because of anything different necessarily, just a cultural differentiation. But again, culture, whilst we would hope that cultural norms and, and moral, um, you know, morality should line up, we know that that's not the case. You know, what is cultural is not always what is moral. And I think that when we start to differentiate between what we should view as being ethical versus what we view as being cultural, we can start to see the juxtapositions that exist there. Mm, that's so interesting. I, I, it, can't morality be a subjective though? Like, can't you think, okay, some people think this is an unjust killing over here. And some people think this is totally justified in killing this thing or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, we can view morality as being entirely subjective, but then we open up a whole can of worms, which is what's the point of a legal system if morality is subjective? How do we prohibit people from causing harm to one another or causing harm to dogs and cats or anyone? Um, once we go down the line of thinking morality is subjective, the way that we create like a cohesive and, and, and functioning society is to create moral standards. And I think that the problem with animals is that we've not made these moral standards consistent. And that's the issue. So if we start, you know, because we don't think that morality is subjective when we talk about dog abuse or cat abuse, you know, we right. put people in prison for those things. Right. So we, we don't actually live by the principle of morality being entirely subjective. So I think what vegans are, are predominantly asking for is just us to be consistent with the values we say that we have, because we're all against animal suffering. We're all against animal cruelty. We all believe that people who do harmful things to animals um, should, should stop doing those things. It's just sometimes we don't realize that we're the ones doing those harmful things things to animals and we're the ones paying for those harmful things to happen because again we're so disconnected aren't we it's just yes. like what you said at the beginning before you were vegan you didn't you know you weren't even aware of what went into meat dairy and eggs and that's the thing we're disconnected so it's hard to place blame on people you know people's feet when the problem really lies in the fact that we don't think about it we are entirely disconnected and then we're also lied to by these huge lobby groups and propaganda machines that perpetuate this messaging of animal farming being this you know well well-run humane ethical sustainable endeavor when the opposite is true it's just about us starting to really i think break down these these pillars of disconnection and ascertaining for ourselves that really our own values are more in alignment with veganism than, than potentially we, we already realize. Absolutely. I, I was so disconnected from this that I truly felt like I called myself an animal lover, but I was eating animals at every meal. Like it just doesn't make sense that you could yeah. truly feel that way about yourself. And then you're, you're paying for food that harms animals. Very strange disconnect there. And although I was outwardly very non-vegan and I thought veganism was very stupid, um, yeah. 
I, I would, I would go fishing with people. I would catch a fish. I would cut its head off and I would eat it. Right. Like yeah. not, you know, but deep down inside of me, I hated it. I felt horrible doing it. I felt guilty, but I just tried to push that down. I remember feeling that way and just kind of wanting to fit in, you know, with what everybody else was doing. And I would say things like, well, I just kind of, I, I respect that this fish is in the ocean. I'm going to try to give it the best death as possible because I respect the fact that it's giving me nourishment. And how can I do this in a humane way? Can you, can you share anything about those types of thoughts? And, you know, do you talk to people who have those same kind of perspectives? Absolutely. I mean, I used to fish as, as well. Um, I didn't do it so prolifically, but I, I did fish. Um, although interestingly, I, um, my family who I used to fish with, when we would go fishing, we would never kill the fish ourselves. We would catch them, release them. And then, cause we used to do it in this kind of like fishing lake. So it was, it wasn't out in the ocean or anything, but we'd go to the store at this fishing lake and then buy a trout who had already been killed. So we would catch them, release them and buy them already dead and gut them. But we didn't do the actual physical, the actual, the actual act ourselves, which I always thought was quite interesting. And I remember one time being quite young and seeing this man who was fishing alongside me, catch a fish and grab like a wooden baton and just beat this fish over the head until they were dead. And I remember even when I was young, probably eight or nine years old, just being really struck by how awful I, I found that to be just the, the, the violence behind that. But, you know, we, again, it's all about how we are raised and what's normalized around us. And if my family had been the type of people who would kill the fish themselves, I would have probably done it myself as well. And I think it's just all about what's normalized around us. And I think that again, when we can view it in those terms, it becomes easier to try and to, to recognize why we engage in the behaviors that we do. I think when we talk about like what's humane and what's ethical, it's really important to compare those ideas against the alternative, which is to not do these things to animals. Firstly, you know, when we look at the word humane, you know, we, we can open up, open up a thesaurus, you know, find synonyms for the word humane, and we'll find words like compassion and benevolence and kindness. And I always think what's interesting is if we use these words to describe what we do to animals, you know, can we compassionately cut the throat of an animal who doesn't need to die? Or can we benevolently, um, you know, beat a fish over the head with a baton until they're dead? You know, the things that we do to animals are in are a direct contradiction to this notion of being humane and compassionate and benevolent. And I think when we when we view what we do to animals against the alternative, which is to not do these things, the question becomes, is it more ethical or more humane to not kill when we can avoid doing so? You know, is it more ethical to not take the fish out of the ocean and bludgeon them than, than to take them out of the ocean and bludgeon them? And I think the problem is we sometimes view what we do to animals from the position of needing to. Oh, I'm getting nutrients or nourishment. And we sometimes view it from that position of, well, this animal's providing me with something. But as soon as we recognize that the animal doesn't need to provide you with something, and then we have the alternative, which is to not do these things to them, I think it, that, that notion of something being humane or ethical, when it's needlessly violent, becomes an obvious contradiction. Yes. Can we speak more about the nutrition piece? Because I just yeah. assumed that you needed animals for protein. You needed milk for calcium. I was just like, where do these people get their protein? They're, they must be so weak and nutrient deficient. So yeah. can you talk about that at all? Yeah. I used to think that before I was vegan, that, you know, vegans were like crawling to health food stores, just trying yeah. to get like, <laughs> you know, bags of protein just to sustain themselves, you know, that, 
that um, it, it's it's a funny thing that we think, isn't it, about vegans and, and protein and nutrition. Um, the protein one's easy. I mean, you can get more than enough protein on a plant-based diet. But I do think that that what's important to recognize is is how to do it. You know, I think the most important nutrients to think of are things like B12, vitamin D, iron if you're a woman, calcium, you know, and protein. Those are those are the kind of the staples. And I think the it's not really a question of if it's possible because the you know the biggest health organizations in the world so the world health organization the nutrition of, of uh, the academy of nutrition and dietetics which is the basically the the health body in the us there's a hundred thousand dietitians and nutritionists in this organization you know they all talk about how a plant-based diet can be healthy for all stages of life including pregnancy infancy all of it but it's not a question of if, it's a question of how. And so the easiest thing to do is just spend a little bit of time, just, just find some recipes that are good sources of protein, calcium, iron, all of those nutrients, and just make sure you're confident. Because when we, whenever we make a dietary change, whatever that dietary change might be, we just have to go into that dietary change being empowered to know that we can be healthy. Because you can be a nutrient-deficient vegan, just as you can be a nutrient-deficient vegetarian, pescatarian, meat-eater. It's about what we eat, right? And within all of these diets, we can either get all the nutrients we need or not. So I think whenever anyone goes vegan, I think that little bit of added scrutiny is actually an important thing because it encourages us to go, well, I should be careful and make sure I'm, I'm getting everything I need. And then you'll find that protein is abundant in things like legumes and nuts and seeds and whole grains. Calcium can be found in vegetables and nuts and seeds, you know, and all of these different things. All the nutrients we need, we can get from plant-based diets. And I think just being aware of that and how to do that means that when we actually make that change, we can feel extra confident knowing that we're looking after ourselves as well as, you know, the animals and the planet. I love that. Just like how, how to do it, not if it's possible. We've already yeah. established it's possible. So yeah. back then, if I had heard you tell me this stuff, Ed, I'd been like, okay, I'll, I'll eat more plants. But however, don't plants have feelings too? They're the living things. They must feel pain. Like where does the pain argument end? Well, this is a good question, isn't it? Again, you're right to make the, the claim that plants are alive, that they are just as bacteria and viruses are alive. You know, we, when we take antibiotics, we are killing bacteria who are alive, but we don't think bacteria, you know, are sentient and feel pain and are conscious and all these things because, you know, they're not. And it's the same with plants, you know, sentience is the capacity to experience subjectively. So it's about having a nervous system, a brain, consciousness, all of these things are, are important when we talk about the capacity to experience. And so plants are intelligent. And so what I mean by that is they, they can grow, well, they grow towards the sun, they absorb water, they can release certain chemicals, you know, they, the root system is very complex. Plants are actually incredible, but so are bacteria and viruses, you know, they mutate, they spread, you know, when we think about what viruses can do in bacteria, it's kind of terrifying, but they're not sentient, they're just displaying forms of intelligence, like artificial intelligence, the form of intelligence. So the thing about animals, because humans are also animals, is that we have the ability to experience subjectively, we are sentient, we are conscious, and, and you know, pigs, cows, chickens, and all the animals who we conventionally farm are also the same. But what I always say to people is, even if I can't convince you that the, the plants are not sentient, and maybe you are thinking to yourself, you know what, Ed, I just strongly believe that plants feel pain and that we should care about plants. That's fine by me. You know, I don't agree with it, but it's fine because when we think about veganism, we think, well, hang on a minute, vegans consume more plants, therefore more plants are probably being killed. But actually, 
a plant-based food system reduces the amount of plants being farmed because we feed about 85 billion land animals every single year plants. You know, that's the number that we slaughter. So right now we're growing plants to feed 8 billion people and about 85 billion land animals. Now, if we remove those 85 billion land animals, sure, we as humans individually will consume some more plants, but overall the amount of plants being grown will reduce because we're no longer feeding these 85 billion or so land animals. So actually, if we care about plants, the best thing we can do to them or do for them is be vegan because we are removing the biggest source of deforestation and also the biggest consumers of plants globally, which are cows, pigs, chickens, lambs, and the animals who we conventionally consume. Oh my God, I fucking love that. <laughs> I love the fact that if you care about plants and that argument, the best thing to do is to eat them because yeah. you are reducing plant suffering, if you will, by going vegan. Going back to when I was a teenager, I just assumed that my friend who was vegan probably like, I just assume that vegan equals expensive. You have to buy a lot of mm -hmm. expensive products and things and whatever. I just assumed she grew up wealthy and had that accessible to her. Can you share a little bit about the financial piece to this transition? Absolutely. I mean, veganism is, is similar to eating meat. And what I mean by that from a, from a financial perspective is if you eat meat and you want to eat some red meat, for example, you've got a number of choices in front of you. The first thing you can do is go to an Arby's, right? And just buy some cheap, a cheap beef sandwich or a cheap burger. The second thing you can do is go to a supermarket and buy some steak from the supermarket, or you can go to a high-end restaurant and spend, you know, lots of money on, on a piece of red meat. So you may want a piece of red meat, but the amount you spend on that can vary depending on your means and, and, and where you get it from. And it's the same with a plant-based diet. You know, you can be on a plant-based diet and spend lots of money on alternatives and substitutes and go to Whole Foods or Irwan, you know, wherever it may be and spend a lot of money on something. But that doesn't mean you have to as a vegan. You can be a vegan who spends very little. And the way to do that is to focus on whole foods. So I'm, you know, talking about things like frozen fruits, frozen vegetables, you know, tinned legumes, so things like beans, chickpeas, lentils, whole grains like brown rice, whole wheat pasta, um, things like potatoes and sweet potatoes, you know, flax seeds. There are a, an abundance of very affordable plant foods, which actually, from a health perspective, should be the foundations of, a, of our diets anyway. And there was a piece of research done by some researchers at the University of Oxford, and they were looking at high income nations, and they were interested to know what the most affordable diets were. And they found that the most expensive diet is a pescatarian diet, but actually the most affordable diet is, is a whole foods plant-based diet. So that's one that's wow. not, you know, by, you know, involving like impossible burgers and beyond burgers every day, right. but is instead one, you know, focusing on those foods that I just mentioned. So actually you can save money on a plant-based diet. It's just about how you do it. Oh, wow. Wow. So however, what about this? Like if we stop breeding animals or we stop eating them, won't like some animals become extinct? Won't they overrun us at some point? We're just going to have all these cows walking around, not knowing what to do with them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that's, it's a funny one, isn't it? Cause I get this all the time. I've had people tell me that, um, sheep will take over the world, you know, like some <laughs> nefarious tyrants, you know, they're going to, going to get their retribution. But I think that the first thing to recognize is um, that we don't want to release all these animals into the wild. You know, I, I just mentioned that we kill about 85 billion land animals every single year. 
So we don't want to release those all into the wild. Most of them wouldn't survive because they've been selectively bred and domesticated to the point where they uh, couldn't fend for themselves in the wild. So actually it'd be a pretty, pretty unpleasant thing for many of these animals. But the, the other thing to consider is that's not what will happen. We only kill this number of animals because we breed them into existence. The reason we breed them into existence is because consumers demand through their purchases that these animals be bred so that they can have the supply they want. You know, they can get the meat, dairy and eggs they want. So if we recognize that we breed animals into existence to meet the demand of the general public, if the demand from the general public starts to decline, and the you know people want to eat less and less meat, dairy, and eggs. That what what that naturally means is the number of these animals we are breeding will naturally decrease as well. So if we ever reach the point where the world is vegan, even if that is slightly um, utopian, perhaps where, wherever we get to on that scale, will just be a world where we are simply breeding less animals into existence because the ones who are alive now are going to be killed to meet the demand. But what we can do is stop more being bred into existence to replace them over time. And now the, the natural question, which is what you said at the beginning is, well, does that not mean that we're going to have no cows and pigs and chickens anymore? And the first thing to consider is there are still wild boars, there's still wild cattle, there's still wild turkeys, there's still wild chickens. So actually from a wild animal perspective, all of these species of animals still exist in the wild. But the problem is the animals who we farm are not natural animals. They're selectively bred. So what I mean by that is we humans have intervened and bred them to give them certain traits. For example, egg laying hens who now lay 300 plus eggs a year are actually, actually they've been bred from animals who lay about 12 to 20 eggs in a year. Or dairy cows produce 10 times more milk there or thereabouts than wild cows do. So we've actually modified these animals through selective breeding and through different means so that the animals we're farming now are not natural animals. They don't exist in the wild in the way that we farm them, in the ones that we find in our farming systems. So actually, whilst we may not have these animals, or at least many of these animals left, what we will have are these wild animals. And importantly, the best way that we can improve biodiversity and habitat um, or the existence of habitats is to actually remove animal farming because animal farming is the biggest user of land globally. It uses more land than any other industry. And it's the biggest driver of, like I mentioned, deforestation, but also species extinction. No other industry in the world contributes to the extinction of, of more species than the animal farming and fishing industries. So if we really want to protect wild animals and we want to protect uh, wildlife from extinction, the best thing we can do is eliminate animals from our food system. And then with the land that we free up, return that to nature, reforest, replant, regrow. And as a consequence of that, we can start to hopefully reverse some of this biodiversity loss. So in other words, we don't want these farmed animals. What we want is to improve biodiversity of, of natural wild animals, because that's the best thing that we can do for the planet more generally. Okay. I also heard the last few years though, like, isn't soy farming really bad for the environment and stuff like that, or like plant farming? I don't know if it was soya or soy or something like that. Can you share a little bit about that information? Absolutely. I mean, plant farming isn't perfect. You know, there, there's still issues found in plant farming. And I think one problem we can often run into is we think about, oh, almonds in California use a lot of water or avocados right. grown in Mexico involve deforestation. And those two things are true, but that doesn't invalidate plant-based, a plant-based food system in its entirety. 
you know, in California, the biggest user of, of water is actually the dairy industry. Um, so when wow. we think about, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, alfalfa, which is a feed source for dairy cows is the biggest user of water in California. Um, and incidentally, California produces 80% of the world's almonds and still uses less water than the dairy industry in California, which only produces about 20 to 33% of the U.S.'s milk supply. So you have a fraction of this milk supply in the U.S. alone using more water than 80% of the world's almond production. Um, but that point aside, there are still some things that could change about plant-based farming. But soy is an interesting one. Soy gets an, a bad rep from an environmental perspective, and rightfully so, because the two leading drivers of deforestation in South America are the cattle industry. So that's cattle farming for beef and for leather. Um, that leather that's produced in South America is used by brands like New Balance, Nike, you know, Dr. Martens, you know, household names all over the world. But the second biggest driver is actually soy farming. So then we think, well, hang on a minute, soy farming, that's tofu, that's tempeh, that's soy milk, that's vegan foods. But actually, about 75 of or 75 there or thereabouts of the world's soy production, 75% is used as animal feed. So the vast majority is going to be fed to animals. But in South America, that percentage is even higher. In fact, it's estimated that about 96% of all the soy that's produced in South America is used as animal feed. So actually what we have is a situation where soy gets a bad rep, but the reason it's bad in South America is because it's grown and used as animal feed. Whereas if we were to use soy for ourselves and just grow food for for humans using soy, we'd be able to produce it in a, in a much more sustainable way. And actually, soy is, is a bean, so it's a legume. And legumes are some of the most sustainable plants that we can grow. But because of the way they're grown in South America and the sheer volume of the, the number that, that's been grown, that's why we have problems. But it's because of animal farming again. The biggest consumers of soy globally, birds and pigs. And by birds, I mean you know, farmed chickens and yeah. ducks and turkeys. And there's, an, there's a saying, which is, if you want to protect South America from, you know, deforestation for soy production, consume soy, because the soy that vegans consume is not coming from, from those, is, is mostly not coming from those places. Oh my gosh, that just blew my freaking mind. Unreal. Like, and it's, Unreal. And it's like, when I think about me, like, where would I find all of this information and be able to piece it together? Like, I just love what you do, where you are able to share this information in, an, in a digestible way, pulling from all these different sources. So I really appreciate that. This has been so fascinating. I'm just curious, more of a personal question. Before you went vegan, what were some of like your favorite foods and what, what could you wish if you could go like kind of go back in time and tell your non-vegan self about going vegan, what would you say to yourself about it? Oh yeah. I love that question. Um, <laughs> simplify it down. When I first went vegan, for some reason in my head, I was like, I'm vegan, right? So now I have to eat kale and quinoa right. and it's going to be all of these things. And, and, and what I realized very quickly is that I was eating these foods, but I didn't feel that satisfied. And I was like, oh, you know, this is, this is hard. But what I, what I realized is I, you know, going vegan isn't about reinventing the wheel, right? We're just adding some shiny alloys, you know, we're making it fresh and new and sparkly, but the wheel is still the same. And so what I mean by that is you can cook the same foods that you normally cook because the majority of the food we eat is made of plants anyway. So for example, 
you know, pasta dishes or curries or stir fries or nachos or burritos. The core aspects of those are often vegan, but we then add something non-vegan into it, like a beef mince or chicken. But what we can do is cook the same food and then just not add the beef mince and chicken and add something plant-based instead. So when I was like, well, hang on a minute, you know, after a little bit of being vegan, I said, what did I used to enjoy eating? spaghetti bolognese, mac and cheese, um, you know, chicken curries, those foods. I was like, why don't I just make those, but just make them plant-based? And then all of a sudden I started to feel that I wasn't depriving myself because I was eating literally the same foods just with a couple of small alterations here and there. So I'm I'm a massive fan of pasta. I'm a sucker for pasta. So anything spaghetti bolognese, lasagna, mac and cheese, any of those foods, um, I still love them because I just make them plant-based and you know, Google's your friend. If you type in your favorite recipe and just type in vegan, the chances are you're going to get hundreds, maybe even thousands of different recipes for for that food. And this is for anything, you know, fried chicken, you're going to find hundreds of different plant-based recipes for vegan fried chicken or pretty much any food you can think of. There's going to be some vegan recipes online now. And I think that it's about just simplifying it down and not thinking that you're changing everything about the way you live. You're literally just making a couple of ingredient changes to the foods that you most likely already consume. Thank you for sharing that. That's exactly how I feel. I almost equivalent equivalent it to going to the store and just buying a different detergent now it's like i used to buy tide and now i use like ecos and it was like it's at the same store and maybe just a foot to the right and that's what i get now and it i don't feel deprived i'm a huge foodie i've always loved food still love food love the taste like i don't feel deprived at all and i think that's such a big misconception is that oh you're not going to enjoy food and have tasty food anymore when you do this and like i have even tastier food now and i feel amazing on top of it so thank you for sharing that ed thank you for being here today this was so fascinating is there anything that you would love to leave people with that we didn't talk about today and then also where people can find you your work your book all that good stuff yeah um i think it's just a case of um reflecting on the way that we live, asking ourselves some, some difficult questions and just being, you know, just being upfront about, you know, our beliefs and our values to, to ourselves individually. Sometimes vegans have this reputation of being forceful and preachy. And, you know, sometimes we can fulfill that stereotype. I'll admit it. But I think ultimately anyone who goes vegan goes vegan because they themselves have decided that it's the right thing to do. But the problem is until we think about it, we don't know how we feel about these things. So I just say to anyone listening, just do um, you know a very brief uh, researching session. Look into what happens to animals. You know, look into what standard farming practices are. It's not comfortable. You know, it it is upsetting, but that tells us something about the process as well. The fact that we don't want to watch it, or the fact that it's not nice, I think speaks volumes about how we actually feel about it. So have a look into that have a look into some of these environmental claims and just do your own research, but do so in a way where you can then feel empowered to know that the decision you're making at the end of the day is the one that actually aligns with the values that that you have. Um, and in terms of where people can find me, um, YouTube and Instagram mainly, um, I have a TikTok, um, as everyone apparently is obliged to have a TikTok these days. <laughs> so I've got a TikTok, but I also, as you say, I have a book um, and it's available in places like Barnes and Noble, Amazon. So, so most 
retailers, especially online uh, in the US, will stock it. Um, and it goes into, I, I suppose, just more depth about many of the things we've already discussed, a lot more detail about the environment, about health, about the ethics. And, and, and even as we discussed, some of the social, cultural, psychological aspects of this conversation. So, um, yeah, it's available on Audible as well. All the, all, all the, all the classics, basically. Yes. Amazing. Well, thank you again so much. This was so informative and just so great to meet you. I appreciate you taking the time. Of course. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I really appreciate it. Well, uh, that was me just meeting one of my heroes. No big deal. Um, Wow. There's a lot that we did not get to today. We just didn't have the time. Of course, I would love to have a 15 hour conversation with Ed, but that's why I encourage you to go follow him on his social media, go to his website, watch his videos, because um, you might have a lot of lingering questions and points that you want to um, you know, discuss. And whether it's like, I don't know, why do we have canine teeth? Aren't we supposed to be eating meat with those teeth? Um, to, you know, maybe you feel bad with, for what's going on with farmers and how do we rectify that to hunting as a family tradition? Or, you know, what about people who live in food deserts? Um, isn't being vegan very elitist? Uh, why are we wasting time with animals when we need to focus on human rights? But I love bacon and cheese. Like any thoughts that you have, um, he addresses really all of that with so much insight and, and stats and a lot of compassion. So highly recommend going to check him out. Out. And I personally learned so much in this episode that I had no idea about, and I've been vegan for five years. So there's just a lot out there. And, um, I promised you, I would share my backstory a little bit about this transition for myself and some of my first steps. So I think, um, what's an interesting thing to think about, and maybe you want to think about this for yourself, just out of curiosity, but I remember the very first time as a kid that I was explained to that I was eating an animal. Um, I was about, I would say four or five, I was in preschool and I had gone to the zoo on a field trip with my class that day. Um, and we were, you know, holding chickens and petting cows and all that stuff. And then I came home and one of my parents was making chicken for dinner. And so as I was eating it, I was asking my parent, like, wait a minute, I'm confused. This food has the same word as the animal I met today, um, but I'm not eating that animal. Right. And so, you know, my parent had to explain to me like, well, you're not eating that exact animal, but you are eating an animal. And it's like, it's basically that animal's cousin is, is who you're eating. And I, at four years old, or maybe about five, um, just horrified, absolutely horrified, devastated that I was eating the same creature that I had held and had so much fun with that day. And so I, I just encourage you to think about maybe that very first time that it was explained to you or that you realized like what you were eating. And for me, I had such a negative visceral reaction, even as a kid that of course I slowly pushed down over many years um, because, you know, it became normalized and, you know, that's what we did and that's what I'd always done and all that. And even as an adult, um, I still had that teeny tiny little voice in my head, like I, you know, going fishing or whatever it was, um, where I'm like, oh, tiny little voice that says, God, I feel so bad about this. Like, I don't want to actually be doing this. But then the much bigger voice was like, it's fine. Don't think about it. I, I want to fit in with the people who I'm fishing next to. I, I don't want to be the odd man out in this fucking boat, whatever it was. 
Um, but I think it's interesting to go back and like, what was your very first reaction before you had any kind of information or, you know, conditioning around this topic of any kind? Um, okay. So, um, I shared a little bit about this, I believe on an episode that I did called like 50 simple vegan delicious swaps or something. So if you want to learn more about my favorite products, at least my favorite products at the time, because I, I discover new ones all the time. Um, but I share a little bit about like some first steps. So that might be a good episode to, um, look at basically, um, when I was about 25, I was, um, a friend of mine had recommended a documentary called Vegucated or something, and it was about a plant-based lifestyle or diet. And the only reason I actually agreed to watch the documentary is because my friend was not a vegan person. I know for a fact that if a vegan person had recommended, I watch a documentary, I would have been like, uh, no, thanks. Sounds like vegan propaganda cult shit. No, thank you. So I ended up watching this documentary, um, had some good information about health stuff and, um, I, but it didn't really get into like environment, animal, anything like that. So I ended up going plant-based for about a year when I was 25. Um, and, but like, I knew it was temporary. It, I could, I was treating it as a diet and kind of a trend and something that I could like do to maybe get abs or something. And I'm not saying that going, uh, plant-based for your health is not a great reason. Like, of course it is, but I knew myself that it was just something that I was approaching in a, in a more short-term way. And I ended up going back after that for a couple of years, I went back to eating meat, dairy, all kinds of stuff. And I remember the exact moment and reason why I did that. So, um, about a year into being plant-based at that time, I got into a pretty big comedy festival that I was super nervous about getting into. I was surprised that I got in, uh, it was just a lot of famous people. And then like a few up and comers and I really wanted to fit in and be liked in this group. So I went to the airport on the way to this festival. It was an international festival. And at the airport, I just, I bought like an egg McMuffin at McDonald's. That was like the first thing I got. And I was just like, I'm not going to be the fucking vegan girl or plant-based girl in this situation. No way. And then when I actually got to the festival, how the irony is that a lot of the people and comedians I ended up hanging out with were vegan. Um, and so, yeah, if I had not gotten in my head about like the awkwardness and the social stuff, it would have been totally fine. I would have been like supported. Nobody would have given a shit, but that's really when I cared a lot about like what people thought of me. So, um, I went back to just eating whatever, like on that whole trip, I just ate whatever I really wanted to fit in with the majority of people there. And then, um, when I, when I got back from that trip, my skin broke out immediately with a vengeance. Um, my acne came back and I truly did not realize I wasn't, I didn't understand the connection of what I was eating and how it affected my appearance. I just didn't think that was the reason. Um, I, because people around me could eat whatever they wanted and didn't seem to have struggles with acne. So I just didn't think that was a real thing. And so I ended up going on Accutane again. Um, I think it worked temporarily very short period of time, but then it just came back and I was so devastated by that. If you've ever struggled with skin issues, like I, I feel you, it really sucks. And so 
went on Accutane and then I struggled with acne again, like it just in my later twenties. And then a couple years later, my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, he went on a, like a long weekend trip with some friends. And when he was gone, I just noticed that I was naturally eating kind of vegan or vegetarian options, like just naturally by myself, like without nobody there. And I just had this overwhelming desire to look into this stuff again. I had obviously I'd had a few introductions with it by meeting vegan people, by watching that documentary one time, by like going plant-based, but kind of doing it in a really hard way. Um, and, and a big part of that was that we had been doing self-helpless for a year or a little over a year. And the whole point of self-helpless was like this self-discovery and this this, um, you know, deep dives into what was going to make us the, you know, most fulfilled and, you know, living in alignment with our values. And so much of the stuff on self-helpless had already worked for me, like that I was talking about and sharing about like, you know, adopting a minimalist lifestyle and, be, you know, being an entrepreneur, like all of these alternative lifestyles were making me really happy. And, um, I, really disliked how confused I was about the food stuff. It seemed like, you know, anytime I went on social media, one person was saying something, one thing about nutrition, somebody was saying, somebody else was saying completely contradictory things. It was just so overwhelming. And I am somebody who likes to kind of get down to the root of things, figure shit out and, and move on. And I really wanted to figure out like, what's going to be the most optimal way for me to eat based on my values and my goals and all of that. So that's when I spent that whole weekend while Cam was gone, just doing a deep dive of all kinds of information, everything that I can find about diets, food, all that shit. Um, so I was looking at vegan stuff. I was looking at anti-vegan stuff. I was looking at keto shit. I was looking at every type of uh, diet, whatever. I was watching Ted talks, reading articles, watching documentaries, listening to podcasts. And I did that all fucking weekend. I am somebody who kind of hyper focuses on a topic. And then I, as soon as I kind of find a resolution I'm happy with, then I just kind of go from there. So that's really what I did. Cam got back from his trip. I told him like, Hey, I just want to let you know that like, I want to be vegan and I've been doing this stuff all weekend. And could you please just not share that with anybody yet? I'm not really comfortable talking about it with people. And, um, I also just wanted to make sure for myself before telling people, because I had done this whole plant-based thing at, um, you know, 25 or six. And then I ended up, you know, going back on it because of the social pressure and stuff that I got, uh, you know, in my head about, and, um, but you know, this time felt totally different. I was super connected to all parts of it, not just the health aspect, but environment and animals and disease prevention and all that stuff. So, um, it, you know, I, I received the benefits of that change very quickly. And then I was like, oh yeah, like I'm, I'm never going back. I'm going to start telling people about it, ease into it and all of that. Um, but even, you know, it's even taken me over five years to talk about it this openly on my own fucking platform. Like it, it's, it can be an uncomfortable thing to share because not because of the logistics of, you know, finding delicious food and all that, but it is hard being the only vegan at a party or the only vegan at a wedding or whatever. Like that is, that is the piece that can be challenging 
but the actual, you know, finding delicious food and stuff, there's plenty of options for that now. And that's not even any part of it. It was just in my head is like, what is it going to mean for me and my relationships to be the only vegan at the event or whatever? Um, I've actually talked to a lot of my sober friends who feel very similar, who feel very similarly to this, where it's uncomfortable for them being the only person not drinking at a party. And they might get a lot of questions about it. Like, why don't you drink and what's going on? You know, all that stuff. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's hard being the odd woman out. And, uh, I think that's a natural thing that all of us want to like feel included and feel part of the group. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a little bit of, uh, how I started and, and what kind of stuff happened totally understand those questions that come up, but like, Oh God, what if my friends think I'm difficult? What if my in-laws don't like me anymore? Cause I don't fish anymore. Like all the, all these things of like the FOMO, like the, and, and the fear of being disliked and being judged for this choice. Um, but like, honestly, at the end of the day, you have to do what makes you happy and, and really aligns with your values. And as, um, ch- challenging as the social aspect has been like the benefits and, all of that, like far outweigh any of the challenging stuff. Um, so as far as, you know, and throughout my life, I had also kind of opened up to things like I had a, I had a pet pig at, at uh, one point when I was in college and I stopped eating bacon because I loved that pig. Like <laughs> all those little things I think added up to me finally being willing to look into it. Um, but it was a very personal private decision. Nobody told me to, I was by myself. Um, it was very much self-exploration. And I think that's a really important piece of this puzzle. So as far as first steps, if you want to look at that episode uh, that I did 50 vegan swaps, you can go back to the, the episode we did with Preacher Lawson years ago. If you just Google Preacher Lawson, self-helpless, I forget what it's titled. You can even go back to an episode we did on um, What the Health, where I publicly shit on vegan vegan people and vegans and, and all that stuff. So you can even hear what I, you know, what I sounded like before I did all this. And Ed Space is also a great first start, um, especially if you enjoy like debates and conversation. It's just so entertaining and interesting to watch. And he also has a book. Um, Ed's book is called Vegan Propaganda and Other Lies the Meat Industry Tells You, which is fucking hilarious. So Feel free to check all that out. And I will leave you with the iTunes review of the episode. This is from IB Jenny M or Ib Ib Jenny M. And it says, if only they were all this awesome, maybe uh, like if only all podcasts were this awesome. And then it says smart, witty, beautiful, inspiring. Love it. Keep it up. Thank you so much, Jenny. Really appreciate that. Or IB Jenny. Um, If you want to leave a review, you can head over to iTunes. All right, everybody, hope you have a great rest of your day and week, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening to the Self-Helpless Podcast. You can find our Patreon community, merch, and our individual work at selfhelplesspodcast.com. We'd be thrilled if you shared this episode with a friend or feel free to post it on Instagram and tag at selfhelplesspodcast so we can repost you and say thank you. Thank you.